Welcome back to the 24th episode of Chess Journeys, Tales of Adult Improvement. Here on Chess Journeys, we're not just seeking to highlight the highs and the glory of the ratings gain, but we also dive into all of the other stories, the pits of despair, the plateaus of desperation. Hopefully our guest today, Kevin, will have maybe a little bit of both. We'll see. But before we get started, if you want to support the show, it is the holiday season. You can go to Patreon Chess Journeys uh, for as low as $1 a creation. You can, you can help us reach new heights and, and all the achievements we want to make. Also, I want to thank Chessable for supporting the show. Thanks so much. We talk about Chessable every episode because Chessable is awesome. So that's all that needs to be said there. So let's bring our guest today. Kevin, Kevin, how are you doing? Have you played any chess today? How are things? <laughs> Thanks for having me here, Kevin. Yeah, the answer is uh, I have played chess today. I try to make it as part of my day as I can. All right, we're talking tactics. We're talking rapids over chess com and Lee chess. Uh, we're talking puzzles over chess tempo, Lee chess puzzles, chess com puzzles. Whatever we got, um, I always try to make it so that I sneak a bit of that into my ritual. Awesome. And we will certainly dive more into that in a bit. Uh, let's start, though, with where are you at in your life? Do you have a, a, a partner that you have? Do you have any children? Do you have a career? What does your life look like? How are we squeezing chess into this? Sure. So I actually graduated uh, from university with my bachelor's and my master's in 2019. And I actually ended up getting back into chess as a full-time you know, hobby and you know, pursuit, right? Uh, in, I want to say October of 2020, I had uh, decided that I wanted to go and get a coach. Sorry, it wasn't 2020, it was actually 2019. Never mind. sorry about that. But it's 2019, October, that I was scouring uh, Lee Chess and I saw that I could go and find a coach. I found uh, an amazing guy. His name is Andre Safranov. He's a FIDE master from Russia. And he was uh, charging me a very small sum of money for our lessons. So I looked at that. I said, I make some wages. Why not? Let's go. And he changed the way that I look at the game. He changed the way that I approach it. He added rigor. And you know, it started out with me being able to look at some very basic ideas and tactics. But he started showing me all of the old games of the masters, Bodvinik, uh, Petrosian, uh, Fisher, just to name a few, and uh, his favorite player, Anatoly Karpov. That, that element of uh, research, you know, looking at the, at the past to go and get a better idea of how we can use their ideas in the current games, that appeals to me as an academic, as a professional, and, you know, as somebody who loves the game so much. Nice. So would you say you're taking kind of an academic researcher angle into your improvement process? I, I, I want to be able to improve myself to the point that I am. Because on one hand, already the process that I take says, okay, well, I want to play like Kromnik. I want to learn how, to, how Petrosian did this. I want to learn how Nimzovich, the author of my system, uh, Ludic Pachman, the author of Middle Games, they each had their own idea of approaching the game, but their 
research was exactly that. It was research. It was founded on you know thousands and thousands of games and taking positions and compositions out and analyzing them against each other, right? You know, obviously, I consider myself somebody who's dedicated to practicing and getting better, but to compare the two approaches, I feel like there's, there's no comparison in that. But by virtue of how I am generally and how I like to approach that, that is how I would like to make it, that it approaches it as the science that Botvinnik um, propositioned it as. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because I kind of feel similarly, like I too am an academic, but I feel like, like I'm a child academic, right? <laughs> like I, I might have all the tools of academia, but I don't have like the experience and maturity to be able to fully bring an academic lens. I'm like first learning how, learning how to walk. And then hopefully at some point I can be like, ah, now I can bring all my powers to be onto the subject. Right, for sure. So you're a historian, right? Mm -hmm. As I understand it. And, uh, you know, somebody that, that you remind me of in that way is uh, Olympio Arcan. He's a uh, mm. historian. He's, you know, I follow him on Twitter. I follow all of his updates. He brings out all of these old clippings of Capablanca and Alekin and uh, Nona Gaprandishvili and being able to highlight and bring credit to all of these people. That's, that's what I want to be able to do in my games. I'm, uh, and I hold no uh, pretense about the fact that I'm only just beginning to scratch the surface. Hmm. So do you spend a lot of your time going through game collections and really focusing on one player at a time and really trying to understand and appreciate their style? Are you kind of taking them all on holistically and trying to blend it? What's your approach been then with trying to really engage these masters? Uh, I actually kind of have a bit of a funny story for you. If that's all right. I'm gonna yeah, we love funny stories here in Chess Journeys. So it was back in 2015. Uh, this goes all the way back to 2015. And I'm coming back from a wedding in New York. And I stop in New Jersey. And I'm at a bookshop. Because they just happen to have those there while we're waiting for our car to fuel up. And my dad purchases a book for me called The Chess Player's uh, Bible. It's, it builds itself as kind of your chess primer with games of Capablanca, Carlson, all that and there was a, a very strange opening called the Reti opening. It follows the idea of knight f3, d5, and c4. And I remember I saw that on a board. And I thought, even though I don't actually understand a thing about it, I don't understand why there's a why you play against it like that. I don't understand the consequences of what happens if you decline the gambit or accept it or what have you. I just thought they looked really cool. So when I, you know, many years later, so fast forward to one or two years ago, when I uh, actually ended up getting into a chess club and I wanted to start learning about how to actually develop an opening and who to get behind, I remember I asked my first coach, his name is uh, Mike Cornell, and he's kind of the glue of our uh, chess community in my hometown of Fredericksburg. And I asked Mike, I was like, hey, what do you think of this uh, Knight F3 opening? And he says, it's first class. Look at Kromnik, look at Kasparov, look at all these people who played this. It's really not that uncommon. And I took that, that image from the, from the chess player's Bible and I heard Kromnik 
I looked up games of, of Vladimir Kramnik. I found a repertoire, a collection of his on chess games. And I just, I made that in a way, my Bible. I said, I'm play like Kramnik. Do I understand how to play like Kramnik? No. Mm. Like, no, only Kramnik can play like Kramnik. But even so, just to be able to see the way that he handled things from knight f3, d5, the way that he led into the queen's gambit, the way that he leads through the king's Indian, the way that he handles the English, this mm. all-encompassing, uh, this all-encompassing plan that he has, where he just says, almost like a Vasily Ivanchuk, I play e4 and I see what happens. Kramnik said, I play knight f3, I see what happens. Mm. Flexibility is what drives me. And kind of made itself a hallmark of the way that I have chosen to play. And so it sounds like you're sort of imitating Kramnik's style. And was that a, like you just went through his games first and they just resonated with you? Or did you go through a whole bunch of other players and, and like decide Kramnik was the one? So I started with Kramnik. I started with Kramnik because I said, all right, so here's this nice, you know, convenient repertoire of how I'm going to, you know, not fight like Kromnik, but I'm just going to follow the plans because the way that he plays on its face, it's, it preaches itself as being uh, something that's subtle and crazy positional. But really, I personally think there's a very sub, like a very simple way that he plays. Hmm. And most recently, uh, when I was at the National Chess Congress in Philadelphia, I was playing the under 1600 section and I was at the bookshop and I run into this guy. His name is uh, John Edwards. He's one of the uh, strongest American correspondence chess players, you know, alive, former vice president of computing at Princeton, uh, PhD in African history. So, you know, there you guys go. Chess historian, chess and historians. Right. And uh, John Edwards says to me, he says, what you need to do, you need to find a play. You need to find his collections make him your hero hmm. is and he and he says to me and he says to a couple of other amateurs walking around he's like you know Vishwanathan Anand because he's my hero he should be your hero too and I love Anand's games uh my favorite of his is the way that he uh brought down Joe Latier in the 1990s uh using the Scandinavian defense the lightning kit right but I really enjoyed, again, that very positional, slow play that doesn't really lend itself to a lot of tactics and complications. And uh, so Kromnik, and after a you know, quick discussion with this guy, Mr. Edwards, he recommended me a book that I've taken on, which is Defend Like Petrosian by, uh, I believe it's Alexei Bezgodov. And his face, again, you might think Petrosian. The Trojan was a very slow player, is a very draw-heavy player. But then you kind of take that a step further. He's a draw-heavy player, meaning that he doesn't lose. And uh, one, uh, one of my good friends and my, one of my mentors that I've been lucky to have, Shivam Yadav, is in India. He's a chess coach. He, uh, he tells me defense is not just about passively curling into a ball, locking down, waiting for your opponent to come to you. Defense is snuffing up the ideas the way that Petrosian did. 
the way that Karpov did. And so Petrosian has added itself to my arsenal you know, in that way that I've been sitting down with his book, with his book every night and taking out my board and just one move at a time, plinking through his losses, his wins, regardless of the opening that he played. Because from there, you start to learn how he approached the position. If we can take those ideas, we start to build our own schools of thought. This is fascinating. So would you say then your hero, if you were to say, would be some sort of combination of like Kramnik and Petrosian and just kind of taking that, the different positional ideas from these two players? I would, you know, that's not a, that's not something that I would disagree with. My, my, but there's also the layer to it that we talked about at the beginning of this, which is the scholarly understudy to this. And that's when I invoke Nimzovich and Pachman. Hmm. Because uh, Pachman was a gift that I had received. His book, Middle Games, uh, was a gift from my parents in Christmas of 2019. And that was the book that really changed the way that, not that I approached the games of the masters, but the games that I, oh, it's a copy of Modern Chess Strategy by Pachman. Yeah, I just held up my own personal favorite Pachman book. Yeah, so I have uh, middle games. And on its face, again, it looks very dry, tactics, combinatorial, dot, dot, dot. But, you know, through Pachman, he teaches you not to fear anybody and to not fear the different positions you might face while attack and defense can only be covered in, you know, so many volumes we can at least kind of get a sense for these ideas and when to uncork ourselves with our own mm -hmm. don't fear giving up material but you know don't be reckless either don't be Mikhail Tal, but simply know your rook is doing less than his bishop you can you know afford to go down go down in exchange yeah this um, is great you're, you're giving me so much insight into my own life because i'm realizing that when i developed my repertoire and my plans 20 years ago when I was playing that it very much, I had very much made a combination of Fisher and Kasparov sort of my hero, if you will, in the way you're using it. And then coming right. back, I felt like I didn't have a deep enough positional understanding. And so I've just been kind of switching my openings up to really positional openings without having a hero behind that. And I wonder if that's what I'm lacking. Maybe it would help me a lot. It would allow me to really delve into those specific games and understand these openings better perhaps. I mean, that, that, is, that is an idea. But then, uh, for example, my system by, by Nimzovich, a lot of people like to deadpan it because in the modern era, it doesn't necessarily uh, hold up, for example. Like the games that he played, that uh, he's cataloged you know, painstakingly, I like in Yates, uh, Juve, and uh, you know, games of uh, Louis Paulson are all covered in his books, but the positional fundamentals that Nimzovich uh, gave forth combined with Pachman's combinatorials and combined with uh, Kromnik and Petrosian to be this weird amalgamation of ideas that I've kind of got and I try to go and inject them wherever I, uh, wherever I play. Nice. Let, let's, let's talk a bit about um where you're at now and maybe your background so by whatever metric you use to rate yourself what's your rating these days um so my u.s chess federation 
uh, writing is 1368. And it's really funny because the way that I got that rating is I competed in my first over the board tournaments back in 2016 or so. Mm. And I, you know, had like pretty okay success with that. I ended up, I started out with a triple digit score, which was pretty good. It's provisional, it's whatever. But I remember this tournament, it was the Dulles Quads in taking place at the, I believe it was the Marriott by the International Airport in my home city of uh, DC. And I remember this, uh, I, I had the black pieces in this game. It was my last game of the day. And my opponent said, hey, one of my former opponents who had just finished beating me said, hey, this uh, kid you're about to go up against, he's really good, but if you just, if you don't lose in the first few moves, he's going to get bored and you're going to take advantage of that and win. Yeah. And I was like, well, I mean, at the time, I'm just a teenager, pretty like, you know, wet behind the ear. So I'm like, okay, well, all right, let's go. Kevin, I got, I got crushed. Like it was, <laughs> and I think it was actually looking back on that game, I believe it was that smothered mate in the Caro kind of motif. Ooh, okay. Oh, yeah. It made a really strong impression on me. And it just took me apart that mm. psychologically it made me actually want to give up competing completely. And it was only after a couple of years that I'd actually been able to spend just busting my own chops. Uh, I have a friend, his name is also Kevin and he is uh, the first uh, chess player that I encountered outside of my family to really like, you know, give me, challenge give me create something not a rivalry but just a really nice ongoing sparring partner right? mm. and is uh so my father i'm kind of, i know i'm kind of leading you in all these different directions but i promise there's a kind of a flow to it right when i was a child uh, my father he served in the marine corps he was also uh, an amazing player he was not uh, competing with the u.s chess federation or what have you but he learned when he was a young boy in his uh, home village of Sri Lanka in uh, his friend's hometown of Rathmalana. And he brought that to my brothers and I. When we were in elementary school, when I was in kindergarten, my brothers uh, were four and five years older than me respectively. We all encountered the chess club and we all had varying degrees of success. My oldest brother, he cleaned up. My second oldest brother, he did a pretty all right job of it. I... I had an all right time. I wasn't very good, but I wasn't bad either. Uh, and my father gave us three a challenge. He says, the first one to beat me, if your oldest brother, if the oldest brother wins, the challenge is off. If the second brother wins, the challenge is off for the third. First one to beat him before we each turn 18 gets a small consideration of money. <laughs> I love this. Right. And so my brothers, they all ended up playing against him, but they they didn't beat him and they all eventually fell off. But I stuck with it. I got my butt kicked to the curb and back every single night, Kevin. Like we're talking uh, like I would a couple moves and then I would just blunder it all the way. And my dad looked at it. He looked at me. He says no. And he finishes the game mm -hmm. on the spot. But I kept going, and then eventually I, I, I beat him. 
Okay. So, How old were you when you beat him? I have to know. So this was this was when I was uh, 16, 17. Okay. So you barely made it. It almost so expired. Well, so well clear of the challenge though. And, <laughs> and I still get that bragging right. <laughs> nice. I, uh, but once I went out to college, uh, I didn't get the chance to play with my dad as frequently. So that's when I ran into Kevin. Kevin and I got into competing together. Our first game was actually over a overturned trash can. Mm-hmm. I was uh, running down campus and I see this and I see this guy, he's playing with other people. He's definitely like just destroying them left and right. And I was like, hey, got time for a game? I got to be somewhere, but I'll be back in like five minutes. And that's how that starts. Hmm. And then pretty soon we're analyzing positions over roast uh, venison and uh, pieces of duck. Right. That sounds fascinating. Um, right. I've got a quick question about 2016, that tournament. Was this yeah. like, how old were you? Were you like 15, 16 playing with your dad? Was it that? Oh, uh, no, no. So I was, so 2016, I was actually, I was 18. I was 18. Okay. So you've already beaten your dad. I've already you beaten my dad. I've, I've played go back to in tournament. Seven, right. And I sit down and I just get wiped out and I never want to play a game again. I don't look at chess.com. Oh. I don't even know what Lee chess is. I'm just down. Like I'm okay. Doing- so I have to ask about the now. psychology of this, right? You have this thing that you like, you have one loss and you're just like done with it forever, possibly. What so, happened there? So I think it's because, uh, and the difference is, that I didn't know how to lose. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it certainly does. My daughter flips out anytime she loses. I, t- I see it all the time. <laughs> right. And so I think that something that I have learned over the amount of time, the, the journey that I've taken to get back into the game is learning how to lose. Mm-hmm. It's because if you learn how to lose, you learn how to win. It's as much as it is a mentality thing in terms of when you're in a tournament game and you get crushed, you have to remember to pick yourself up so much as it is. You also have to be able to win, but you also have to be humble. That humility, both in defeat and in loss, it's something that I think everyone needs to have mastered regardless of their stage in the game. Yeah. And also in life, I think that's one of the things I like about chess is I think it's such a useful skill just in life to encounter a really bad problem that devastates you and be able to pick yourself up and try again. You know, there's plenty of people who can't, they get devastated the one time they're just like, all right, life defeated me. And that, that can be tough. So at that moment, uh, I didn't know how to lose. And so I took myself out of the game. And it was actually because when I when I was studying under Andre for a bit, I actually didn't play any games with him at that time. He we a lot of him showing me the games of the greats and him you know, walking through with me, but I didn't really have a contextual basis for it. Uh, and then that's when I met national master Carlos Didano of Venezuela because in January, 2020, I said, I want to change things up. I want to change the approach that I'm taking. And I, and I told Carlos the story, the same thing that I'm telling you. And I said, I lost really brutally and it made me not want to pick up the game again. Can you show me how to get back into that? Hmm. 
And he says, absolutely. You know, I'm going to show you what it's about. And, and, we, and we sat down for a lesson and, and we play two moves. And he's like, you play the Sicilian? I was like, I play the Sicilian in that I just played the move that defines the Sicilian. <laughs> um, and he dog walks me. Just, it's, it's the most, it's, he walks my king all the way from its, from its square on uh, E8 all the way to F3. Mm. And he, and he wow. checkmates me. And then he says to me, he says, you played the Sicilian against me. Can I tell you something? And I was like, what? He's like, I've been playing the Sicilian for 20 years. And I was like, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, but it's just that. It's that he showed me how to lose. Mm. And he showed me how to get value out of losing. And he showed me that no matter how, whatever the result of the score sheet is now, win, lose, draw, it's okay. Because I'm going to get something out of it. Uh, you know, of the single, of the double digit games that I've, you know, won in the triple digit games that I've played with him over the past year and a half, no matter how hard he, he's thrown me to the ground, I've always gotten back up and I've always been able to smile and be like, that was so much fun. Let's go again. Nice. You know, it doesn't make you a sadist. It makes you a sportsman. Yeah. Also, especially in chess, if you can learn something from that experience, I, I personally find it much easier to learn from my losses. When I win, it's real easy to just be kind of like, yeah, there was a mistake there, but whatever I want. But when you lose, it's like, okay, where are the mistakes? Right. Like that was a painful one. For sure. But, you know, uh, but then I used to think like that as well. And then I also got to the idea that, you know, I can't expect my uh, my opponent to miss every opportunity so you know let's say you and me we play a game and and i i make a dubious move i can't expect you to you know uh accept it for what it is i have to expect you to be able to challenge it and if i have that mentality on every single move then so this actually relates to how I've chosen my, you know, quote unquote heroes, how I've chosen my games and how I've chosen my play. I made a, made a pretty big fallacy uh, that I, when I wanted to study going in, that the only way for me to settle the game is in the opening stage. Mm, wow. Because if I can win it in the opening, and that sets me up to win in the middle. It sets me up to win in the end. And so if I know exactly what's going to happen for the first 11 or 12 moves, right, and be able to account for all those different variations, then we're going to be absolutely fine. Hmm. It's so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that hasn't been what I found to be the case either. I, uh, no, it's it's a, it's... it's for that, for that reason, I ended up, uh, I feel like I wasted a lot of my own time in that way, but also, you know, again, I found a way that doesn't work. Mm. And again, relating that to what we were just talking about, which is figuring out that I used to think that if I can, you know, chart my course just and start the game at move 12, or move 13, then I'm fine. But 
we can't do that. And for that reason, I've got to also be a lot more relaxed with how I play. Hmm. Does that make any sense? That sure does. Um, can I ask this question? Do you have any goals with chess? I, I'm, I feel like you sound very process oriented. And I'm wondering if your goals are more just to learn the game better or do you have any like rating goals short term or long term what are you hoping to accomplish i want to increase my rating um what that means in the long term i don't know i can't tell you that i have any delusions about becoming a master because that is that's a process in and of itself that's uh you know taking the time each and every you know competition Every result has to be the W. Every, uh, every analysis has to be so thorough and deep, and et cetera. A lot of people can do that. They're better poised to do that than me. Uh, if it happens over the course of the life that I've chosen to dedicate this to, right, then it'll happen. And that's, and that's my answer for you in that I'm just putting myself to learn as much as I can, to apply it in the process, but also just to learn. Because, you know, like you, you're a you're a PhD. You've gotten you've gotten a critical step of historian, but that also means that to do that, you have to have to be you know be a good student in every sense of the word. Not just being able to turn in the uh, papers, but also being able to look at the whole picture and say how, why. And asking that on every move, every stage of the game, trying to learn about the histories. Uh, there are few other pursuits that are as uh, honorable, one could say, right? Mm. I, I would class it in the same realm as cooking, wine, uh, winemaking, uh, homebrew, homebrew, and... Uh, Overall, just learning, learning as a perpetual student. Yeah. So so it sounds like you're all about the process, but you are hoping for gains. Like if you do this for 20 years and your rating stays the same, then then there's no something wrong with the process. Then there's something wrong with the process. But the truth of the matter is, uh, like Kasparov said, right? At the end of the day, it's not about winning or losing, but it's also about winning, right? Yeah. If there comes a point when I'm not able to do it as well as I could, then I have no qualms about stepping back from it. But I'd much prefer to stop on my own terms than to have to be demonstrated to that I don't have a way forward. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure. My favorite quote was actually from uh, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. All right. And he talks about, I'd rather walk off the field than be carried off the field. Yeah. But I've got my whole life ahead of me. And I am lucky more than anything that I have a job that gives me the free reign, but also keeps me, it's a, I'm an engineer by, by trade. And what that is, is that it gives me license to be creative but it also allows me to have all of my solutions set again, circling back in that academic rigor, rooted in that empirical basis that makes it say, this is going to work. 
this is how it works. Yeah. Um, speaking of the last last dance, I grew up in Chicago during the Jordan era. Yeah. I had this whole warped view of the world that was like, you either win the title every year or you're a chump. And it's kind of followed me my whole life in like all the pursuits I've done where like I'll be playing some card game and I'll go to some big tournament and I'll make the top eight and go back the next day and get fourth. And someone will go, how'd you do? And I'm like, I got last. And like last, I thought you were really good. Uh, And I was like, well, fourth and last are basically the same. (laughs) Right. But, uh, you know, germanely enough, the person who talked best about that was actually Carlson. Magnus Carlson, who won his fifth world championship just a couple of days ago, Mm -hmm. where he talked about they, you know, it looks rosy being the world champion, but it's so much pressure. It's so much time. It's so much energy dedicated to holding up the crown. I want to give it up on my own terms. Yeah. And if I, and if that means that I'm going to make some declaration that the only person can give me the motivation, the spark to get back into it is, Perugia, for example, mm-hmm. and so be it. That's that's what that means. And I, again, that break that I took from chess is, I think, what actually did wonders for my mentality. Mm. Because from that loss, I have, I remember all of the games that I've lost very vividly. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. Mm. You know, because, you know, how could you? But Mm -hmm. of the games that I have lost, I am absolutely, you know, reminiscent of what happened. But I'm also very clear that when I let go of that game, when I when I signed the score sheet and said, okay, I had white score was zero one. I let it go as soon as I as soon as I hand over the score sheet. Nice. Um coming back to the Carlson thing I I think a lot of people are doubtful that he would give up the title and the way I look at it is kind of what you were saying like once you win it five times being able to say I'm done I'm leaving as champion it also sets up this mystique like the next 10 years people are always going to be like yeah you won the title but could you have beaten Magnus and he gets to sit back and smile and be like I didn't say it everyone else said it I'm just sitting here former champion I, I think that could be quite the mystique to have yeah for sure but i'm not a sports psychologist so i can't uh, tell you what he's thinking <laughs> but yeah. but i all i do know is is the same thing that i i mentioned earlier him letting go and saying that whatever happens happens but if Faruja doesn't get it i don't i don't really care because that's to me if he says it then that's what he means there's no hidden layer to it there's he doesn't really seem like a guy who really cares about mystique or glitz or what have you he's proven himself pretty much in every sense of the way he's been number one without being champion highest rated player to ever have touched the game uh after this i think he would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think he would be the longest undisputed champion uh, since Kasparov because uh, Kasparov separated from FIDE after, uh, you know, to start the PCA. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know exactly all the dates of who's been the longest. I'll just say it's been a while. Right. 
But Carlson has done more for the game than the others. He has done, he has gone farther. And at this point, he's just competing against himself. And if he chooses to set that benchmark as with an end date of 2022 or 2023, I forget when the uh, cycle will be played. So be it. You know, he's earned that right every single time. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Let's dive a bit into kind of the nuts and bolts of your improvement then. I feel like I have a lot of good big picture stuff, but say like um, on a daily basis or a weekly basis, how much time do you feel like you're putting in? Are you carving time into your schedule? Are you just doing it when you're available? What does that look like for you? I mean, my my employers know this because I I have a very unorthodox schedule as is, right? Mm. Uh, Because I'm an engineer, I kind of, have bursts of creativity and I just kind of sometimes I'll, I can do eight hours worth of work in two or three sometimes it takes me the full day but otherwise you know I'm just kind of uh, working with what I got but that means that throughout the day you know I'm watching videos I'm checking out Agad Matters, uh, the Croatian uh, YouTuber I'm checking out Chess Network he's uh, the Philly-based uh, national master and uh, Hanging Ponds he's uh, the mm-hmm. He's a Russian uh, opening theoretician on his way to Grandmaster. He's raked about 1921, and I've been follow and I follow his progress. Uh, on Wednesdays, I follow the uh, on Twitter. I'm part of Chess Twitter, which is how you and I met. I meet with uh, Finn Donovan and uh, a group that we've established that has a lot of rotating members, but still a couple of core people that kind of keep things going. We get together. We solve puzzles for an hour. We all just kind of stick ourselves in a Zoom bridge and we say, okay, we pull up the puzzle, we think about the move. Once we've settled, all agreed on the first move, we just carve our way through variations. And if anybody has any different ideas, we dispute the shit. We, sorry, we dispute everything out of them. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, and it's all friendly. No one's trying to prove anybody else wrong. We're just trying to cross-check each other's logic. Nice. That sounds like a really rewarding experience. It's so good, right? Um, every, every two Sundays, I meet with Andre. Uh, he and I chat, chop it up for a minute, and then we spend an hour. That hour is divided into analyzing my personal favorite opening, the French because Nimbich did a lot for me in that way. When I read my system, it's just the way that he showed in his annotated games is just a very simple, clear way to go. And mm-hmm. so that's how I adopted that. So he and I will look over the French defense. We will look over games that were played. And then we'll just try to follow them from A to Z. So E4, E6, D4, D5, Knight, D2, Knight of 6 and in this position, e5, knight, e7. And once we get to, excuse me, your starting point, that's when the game begins. Because he and I have kind of established this understanding of the basic foundation of the opening. So now we get through what's the best move positionally. But once we have that, what's the move that was actually played? And only after all that, what do we think of the engine? Yeah. Are there any tactical possibilities? Things like that, right? After that, end games. We'll set an end game position, 
and then he'll take the opposing side. He says, you either have to draw or win. One of my favorite times is when he says, look at this position. Is it a draw or a win or a lose? Hmm. I'll say, uh, I think that's a draw. He's like, okay, draw me. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's punishing. <laughs> is it usually a loss for you? Even if it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. because, because, because then I'm fighting yeah. to convert it. And then he's like, mm-hmm. it, and then he, he brings up the position hand. draw, lose, win. What is it? <laughs> and I was like, it's a draw. <laughs> and he's like, draw me. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And, and it goes like that. And from there, uh, he's given me, he gave me a study plan because that was one of the first things that I, I mentioned. I said, you and I have been together for a while, but you're my coach. Teach me the way that you would teach one of your students. You know, and he's like, okay, great. 30 minutes of tactics, study, pick an opening, tear, you know, tear into those opening lines, and then pick a game from one of your masters that follows that. So that's an hour uh, on the Sundays, right? And that means that between that, I'm also doing tactics. It doesn't really feel like I'm chalking up, okay, I'm going to spend 30 minutes. It just means that I've got some time. I'm going to spend it doing tactics. Or I really like the idea of just setting some time aside at the end of the day and just rolling through Petrosian. Hmm. Okay. So it sounds Uh, like... You spend quite a bit of time each week, but you don't that's have That's just like... on Sunday. That's What's just that? on Sunday. Oh, that's, that's just, just on Sunday. Sunday. Okay. That's just on Sunday. Because Mondays, uh, depending on what's going on, uh, twice a week, I meet with Carlos for about two hours. And that is first, he and I play a pair of games with uh, opposite colors, white and black. And it's uh, in rapid format, you know, seven plus eight. And then after that, not only are we tearing apart the analysis of those mistakes, but we're also covering general plans of how do we take positions from different games, take those concepts and apply that over what's going on. Mm. And that's how that goes, because now we take, now we get into the idea of, okay, that was theory that we talked about on Sunday. Now it's practice Monday and Wednesday, or maybe it's Tuesday and Thursday, Tuesday and Friday, what have you, right? And in between that, I'm playing a couple of rapid games a day. If I'm feeling like I can't get enough time to sit down and really focus, uh, I just stop playing after a while or it gets too monotony and I'm dropping pieces like it's you know nothing, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Uh, yeah. And then on top of that, I also sit with my friend uh, Shivam and uh, you know, I take lessons from him on occasion. And so that can be either us having a long drawn out calculation session, or that can be us just taking random positions from games that I've played and compiled. Uh, when I moved to Boston, I joined the Wachusett Chess Club and the uh, Westford Chess Club. Those are both uh, places in my community that have been super accepting of me. And that's how I've been able to grow as a player. Ever since I joined that club, uh, Shivam and I, we would take those games, we would just compile them, win, lose, or draw, take out random positions, and just say, okay, all right, what's the plan here? 
and we're going to study them. Nice. Uh, I'll review compilations because I have also, over that time, even though I've uh, ha been lucky enough to study with Carlos and Andre and Shivam, I've also you know, had kind of a rotating time where I've met with various people all over the world, right? And that's the other big draw that chess has been for me. It's been able to connect me with the entire world over. Bulgaria, Hungary, uh, Russia, Colombia. Uh, Margarita Vaska, a woman grandmaster from uh, Bulgaria. Uh, she's one of the greatest educators of the game I've ever met. I remembered one time I played a game at the Continental Open in Sturbridge, Massachusetts. And I said, hey, what do you think of this game? I had black pieces in this. It was a symmetrical Kings Indian. And she says, that was, that was fantastic. Also, here you go. Here's 20 games from the same opening family that I've annotated and given this whole time of you know, learning how to play that you're going to sit down and work through. Wow, that sounds great. Right? The, the passion that I got from her, it's amazing. Uh, Attila Terzo from Hungary. He's uh, famous in the chess Twitter circle from trying to, for his pursuit of the Grandmaster title, uh, since he famously defeated Nakamura in a title Tuesday, I believe. What was it, Arena Kings? Point is, he, he did that and he got renewed inspiration to go for the title. Mm -hmm. And so meeting with Attila and learning from him how to basically take your opponent into, even if you don't play the Grunfeld defense, you can make the, the game take on that family of pawns. You can say, okay, now your opponent basically has to play the white part of Grunfeld, even though he's playing with the black pieces. Hmm. Learning how to take on that family of, of openings and learning how to use pawns the way that Attila showed me how to do that. Right? Uh, with Attila, it's actually one of my favorite games because he drilled me in the King's Indian defense, the Petrosian variation, because it was at that time I was dissecting Kromnik's games. And he says, okay, well now take that, and now you're going to try and use that against me. Let's go. Okay. Uh, Fide Master Alexis Vargas from Colombia. The way that Alexis will would see different ideas as I you know, kind of present it to him, he's like, yeah, I know we should play the Sicilian, but consider, again, changing the colors, change the colors as black. Look at it from White's point of view. What happens if you try to do the similar plan? The way that running into each of these guys and uh, you know, most recently, Anurag Malik, also from uh, Northern India, the way that these guys have all you know, showed me different ways to just be, I wouldn't say, uh, I would say pure, you know, taking the idea of thinking inside the box and then just taking ourselves out of that. The idea that we have to consign ourselves to different ideas, right? And putting that all under one core idea of calculation, right? Um, that is what led me to meet the awesome super grandmaster Roman Edward from France, famously Vessel and Topolov's uh, second in the World Chess Championship. The way that these guys have all 
taken these different aspects of calculation and academic rigor and openings, they all add up and stack up and they create your own style. And I think that's something that nobody talks about and addresses as far as what happens when you meet all of the people that chess brings you into contact with. Yeah, and it's fascinating. It sounds like you've had just an absolute wide variety of coaches. I'm, I'm just curious, like, why have you had so many coaches? Has it been you've, you know, had great experiences with coaches and just want to kind of like soak up the wisdom of a ton of people or, or what's been your That's process it. there? That's it. Mm-hmm. I just want to meet everyone I can. I want to learn from everyone I can. And I, you know, I'm lucky, for example, and for without any sort of presumptions, I'm lucky that I'm in a position where I can do that. Not only do I have the time, but I also just have the you know, ability to have that investment in, my, in myself, but also in my chest, where it is, it's my thing. Mm-hmm. And the way that I have always approached it is saying, I don't ever stop working with someone because I don't like them. I just, you know, we learn from new people. We learn from everybody. They're not, I'm not beholden to anybody and they're not beholden to me either. Nice. That sounds like a really uh, interesting approach that would really allow you to soak up so many different perspectives. I really appreciate that. It really uh, helps the fact that I'm, that of the people that I you know, have maintained this ongoing working relationship with, right? It mm-hmm. helps more than anything we work well together. Yeah. It's kind of like your, your uh, Dubov saying in the, in the Russian, in the Russian teams, it doesn't really matter who you work with. They just say, okay, you're working with X, Y, and Z. It doesn't matter if you guys hate each other, you're going to win. <laughs> so, you know, what have you. But if we're talking about finding somebody to work with, it's somebody who you can, again, just that work with and get along with because that's how you get the most out of each other yeah i feel like especially as an adult improver where you have sort of limited time it doesn't make a lot of sense to have your coach be someone that you don't really trust and you can't really work with all that well it it feels like you really need to be able to trust that that wisdom and advice right and uh, it's it's twofold the first is taking the pressure off of ourselves as adult improvers that's, that's number one, right? We all have our goals. We all have our goals of, of rating, of, of learning more, of, of going farther. The latter being my case. It helps if I also have rating. <laughs> <laughs> Always helps. It helps. But, but also, it's, it's knowing that I don't have any presumptions of the fact that I'm going to exceed these guys who have spent more time honing their craft than I, than I have. It's the same attitude towards learning thermodynamics or learning uh, higher mathematics or, or language or you know, a history of the Civil War, right? These guys all have uh, not learned experience in the history in regards to the war, but they all have experience and it's classes in session. Nice. 
Um, what are some of the resources that you lean on? I, you mentioned a few video series. Are there books right. that you look right. at? Maybe some annotated game collections? Where are we up there? I'm glad you asked. I got, I got you know, tons <laughs> about it. Uh, Maurice Rios's Chess Structures. Oh, yeah. One of the best books I've ever read. You just even being able to crack into a fraction of that and to get understood that, you know, you're not really going for, it helps to not get a bad position out of the opening, but once you have a good position, it's knowing what to do, given that the pawns decide the field of battle. Number one, just the way that Rios breaks it down into families and specific plans from those families, etc. That's amazing. We love that. <laughs> yeah, I can agree with that for sure. Uh, Cyrus Lakdalawa's uh, Move by Move series. Fisher, mm -hmm. Karpov, Kramnik. I have those three books. Those are my favorite to read on a long haul. Uh, I find myself uh, taking the plane a lot of the time. Uh, and when I was traveling to California for my cousin's wedding, my favorite thing was I was just sitting there, you know, comfy seat. I got a, I got a you know, bottle of seltzer water, got my laptop open. And I'm just clicking through Carpod move by move. And nice. how those games are annotated with not only Lakdalawa's thoughts and analysis on how Karpov plays, but also making sure that it's just the right amount of explanation, not so that we're explaining as a fundamental move by move by move, but taking us through where the context is, is required. Hmm. Excellent. And are you doing that on forward chess then? No, I'm doing that with, uh, with chessable. Sorry, oh, chessable. Okay. Not chessable. I misspoke. I do use chessable, but I'm not, I use uh, chess base, chess base readers. Oh, okay. That's cool. Um, I had Simon Williams book on the French. Absolutely amazing. You know, cause again, it points out, this is what you we've got, but now here's what we actually, here's the directions that we actually go in. Mm. And from there we have, uh, the dynamic Reti, which is, a doesn't lend itself to a lot of annotations, but it still lends itself to, there you go. Here's a book on people who have exclusively played knight c3, d5, d4, and watch what happens regardless of the consequences. Mm -hmm. um, in that way, what else have I used? Oh, yeah. So then on top of that, I've used the woodpecker method hmm. to, to do my tactics. Uh, Camille Plichta's, uh understanding of the Fortnite Sicilian was actually instrumental to me just decimating one of my favorite over the like online classical games that I've ever played. And so for that reason, his chessable courses are my favorite. <laughs> mm. Do you spend quite a bit of time on chessable with your openings or what are you mostly using chessable for? I use chessable for my openings. I heard oh. that yeah, that's a bad idea because, again, supercharging your openings is one thing, but once you get out into the middle game, you're kind of mm. in the water. You don't really know what to do. But for that reason, you know, and this is not a paid endorsement, this is not a paid review from my stuff, <laughs> but, you know, 
know, Chessable has been really great for at least building that recognition for me to saying, okay, all right, regardless of whatever happens, I know what I'm going to walk into, right? Mm-hmm. I kind of have this, all right, I may not be booked up to the teeth, but I still have a general compass. And if my compass doesn't fail me, I'm going to be all right. Nice. That's, that's what I've been doing lately. I'm trying to decide whether I pick up the King's Indian defense or not. Um, it kind of appeals to me. So my starting point has been get like two or three free short and sweets on chessable kind of go through them. Like you said, to get the feel, like, I'm not trying to memorize lines yet. I just kind of want to see like, where, where does this game look like it's going? Right. And so as somebody who loves the King's Indian defense, but it's not necessarily very good at it. <laughs> um, okay. And cause, cause that's the other thing, right? Um, one of a good friend of mine that I was lucky enough to make the acquaintance of uh, Vishnu Srikumar. He is a very, he's a talented neuroscientist and also a beast of a chess player. Uh, he and I met for a minute at the uh, second Colonial Open in DC. It was one of my last mm-hmm. time in DC before I headed back to uh, Massachusetts. And Vishnu and I stayed in contact with Twitter and it was through him that I actually met Shivam. And Vishnu says, bro, don't play the King's Indian. Like, just relax, you know, don't, don't worry about it because it's a very, because it's a very complex game. And I get yeah. it. I, I really, I really understand it. That where he's coming from, Mr. Edwards. When I made his acquaintance in Philly, he had the same thing to say. He's like, mm. it's refuted on the computer level. I don't know what that means because I can't read. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm. I've, because I, because I try not to use a, because I try not to care too much about what the computer thinks. I care too uh-huh. much, a lot more about what my tactics is going to give me. Right. Yeah end of the day i'm not playing with an engine my opponent isn't playing with an engine you hope i <laughs> but if it's anything if they're anything like uh igor Rousis, they're probably already a, a titled player before they're relying on an engine to get yeah. out of trouble. Um, but i i don't know because it, it's it's always kind of a very hard boundary for me between what's classical what's technically classical but also what's fun <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and that was a conversation that i had with uh with my friend anurag he says uh you do this thing where you take very quiet openings like the queen's gambit declined and then you make them really aggressive for white <laughs> oh interesting and i'm like i don't know what that means but i'm here for it <laughs> Because again, I don't know about aggressive. I just I, I don't know about cagey. I just know about what I consider taking the ideas, the basic ideas that I've learned, maybe buttressing with them with a couple of games that I've seen in chess games. And if I can find them where Kromnik, where Petrosian has taken them. Mm. And yeah. then what what would I do in this position? Because I'm not playing against a Kromnik or Petrosian. I'm playing against somebody who's still strong, but nothing compared to those guys yeah for sure and and i think that's the other thing that people kind of underestimate when we talk about these annotations is that we're worried like these are the best replies at the highest stage of the game Mm -hmm. with the occasional just one piece blunders and you know time pressure mistakes but they're still high quality games and on their worst days they could still beat us hands behind their back. Yeah. It, I'm in an interesting spot with that, where I've been playing the Queen's Gambit declined and it's fine. 
but I I just kind of feel like I would like to have a more aggressive response to D4 as well um, and be able to kind of have that and thing where depending on my opponent, I could pull out the aggressive response or the more positional, slower response. Right. And, and, and again, uh, truth be told, I don't know anything about whether or not my guy is going to be aggressive or positional. Yeah. Uh, until they play something that's aggressive or positional. Yeah. Um, I know what I'm about, which mm-hmm. is, if I can have both, that's bang on. Let's go. Yeah. And somebody who has uh, done a lot with that was actually, who showed me how to, I can have both is actually Carlos. Hmm. Like, just take this rook and sack it. Watch what happens. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, you'll, you'll love this. Like, uh, I'm <laughs> to a part in, in my over-the-board chest where I'm feeling comfortable with doing that. I haven't done it quite yet. I'm getting there. I'll let you know when that happens. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, um, I don't know anything about... That's the other thing, is that I, I can't claim to, to be anything that I'm not which is I play moves that look like they don't lose. Okay, that's good strategy. And if, they, and if they don't lose, then I'm just going to keep playing until I don't lose. Eventually, your opponent will lose if you don't lose. Right, right, right. Because right. if, yeah. if, if we don't make a mistake, they, they don't make a mistake. Yeah. And if we make a mistake and they don't punish it, then we're fine. <laughs> yep. The most important thing is that just try to play decent moves. And if we can and if we take ourselves out of that box of like, all right, is there a complex variation here? Here's a forcing sequence or what have you. Simple chess. If we play all of the, all of the work is, does itself for us. Yeah. Have you done anything with aim chess yet? I, I looked at aim chess. I looked at it. I, tr- I tried a couple of reports. Um, I actually mm. got acquainted with a FIDE master. His name is Nate Solon. Mm. Yeah. He's a data scientist by trade. Really awesome. Uh, yeah, for sure. Actually got me hooked into a book club where we're all just mm. talking about Alpha Zero. We're looking over the ah, that's paper cool. that spawned that. Yeah. And and my and my guff with aim chess and all of these data driven websites, as as a data scientist by education, my master's was data engineering. Um, it's really cool to see these things, but I we can only take them with a grain of salt, mm. because it rates our openings, it rates our metagames, it rates our etc. According to the engine. It's, it's all relative to the engine. But the question that we keep on coming back to is what good is the engine at our current standing? Whether it be 100 USCF to 1900 USCF, it really seems like the only thing that I gotta be concerned with. Just don't drop a piece. Yeah, that's fair. And, and don't ruin my position and don't drop uh, it. Yeah. I've gotten some interesting insights so far. I haven't really delved too much with it yet. I'm kind of like in the beginning stages, but I've, I mean, some super obvious things like in my blitz games, I play a lot, lot slower than my opponents. And 
uh, sometimes that's a problem. And so it's one of those things where I'm like, does that mean I need to really speed up or, or am I just accepting that um, I'm trying, like if I'm going to play a 5-5, five, five, the reason I'm playing with five increment is so that I can really take some time into a few critical positions and come up with a, with a good answer. Right. And I don't really feel like people appreciate increment. And that's a bit of a hot take, but I got a little bit more for it, right? Five plus zero, three plus zero, those are all one plus zero. Those are all incredibly exciting chess. And at the top, mm -hmm. that one plus zero looks like you and me having a you know critical six hour classical. But that's because they're at they're at the top. They've they've yeah. mastered that in their sleep. But it's who's faster, not who's the better player. And if you're losing your games and your opponent was like three seconds on the clock, you can just start sacking everything and they have to react to that. Yeah. They have to look at that for a second and be like, oh my God, he just gave me a queen. Oh, timeout. That's it. Right. You're tricking him. Increment, the inclusion of the increment says we can't do that anymore. You're going to win because you're the better player. It helps that we've that we draw our opponent into into time territory into time pressure but also with online chess being as disconnected as it is we don't feel that sensitivity anymore we don't feel that sensitivity time pressure in real settings so we got to be again think about like my my approach to that has always been I can't think too hard about whether or not I can do something crazy. I got to think hard about what's the best thing here. Yeah. That's why I only play with increment. I don't want to get into that trap of learning or spending a lot of my resources, learning cool tricks to win in these specific instances, because those instances don't actually come up in the games that I value most, which is sort of like the, the classical tournament game. Right. Because if you start sacking pieces and blitz because you're going to trick your opponent and you're going to cause them to you know, see ghosts and blitz, it affects your behavior in classical. It affects how you start being reckless. And while you know, reckless and aggressive are semantically the same thing, all it takes is a very cool head somebody with a little bit more composure than you or I to just refute that. Yeah. Uh, and that was actually one of my favorite lessons that I learned in a rapid game that I played. Um, it was my first online rapid tournament through US chess. It was organized through mm. the MV chess club. And I remember my opponent is just throwing everything at me. Mm. And it's a rapid game. It's not a, it's not a blitz game. It's a rapid game. But they're being very, very incredibly aggressive and incredibly just, you know, I, I like to use the word saber rattling because mm. it's that they've got a nasty threat here, but it's only a nasty threat if you don't see how to look past it. Yeah. That extra couple of seconds and I think about it and I say, okay, well, this just, we can do that. Let's go. We're okay. And that bluff, that's it. Yeah, when you when you bluff with a few pizzas, 
and someone calls your bluff, you're in big trouble. You've lost. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. The most important thing is, again, we can't, like, we can't treat blitz the same way we treat classical. We can treat, sorry, we can treat blitz the way we treat classical. We can't treat classical the way we treat blitz. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my... Uh do you have any tournaments coming up? I see, it sounds like you're really invested in your USCF rating and that you've played some tournaments. You got anything on the horizon? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm invested. I'm, I'm, again, I always want to make sure that it's clear that I like the idea of, of, being, of being good. I like the idea of, of, of improving. I, uh, but it's, I'm, I'm also trying to make sure that I'm removing myself from the pressure of that as far as I can. Nice. I like that approach. But uh, it's not entirely possible because, of course, you know, there's always an undercurrent to it when you're playing. Yeah. Okay, well, I can't just, you know, go absolutely all out, walls out, you know, throw caution to the winds and let's see what happens. We got to be, uh, got to be careful here because you don't want to lose. Uh, yeah. So, I, uh, I've been I've been coring the idea of the Empire State Open. I was thinking mm. about the uh, the National American Open in Las Vegas, but Las Vegas is Las Vegas. It's five hours away in the desert. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, you know, more than anything, I've got a family thing that I want to be back here for, and I can't. And what happens if, for any reason, the planes uh, stop working for for a couple hours? Yeah. Those plans out the window, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, more than anything, what I really want to do is I want to go to the Boston Chess Congress in January mm. if uh, New York and Las Vegas don't work out respectively. I, uh, I've always had a dream to play in the uh, Tata Steel Amateurs. Oh, that sounds fun. Oof. One time, one, uh, actually in early 2020, January, before COVID took the world, I was in Amsterdam and uh, my favorite... Uh, chess stories that I was able to actually visit the Cafe Laurier Room, where all the you know, greats have played at one point or another, and the, and the Tata Steel was getting ready, and Ishgiri was actually Eindhoven uh, at the local, at the stadium uh, promoting the game by giving simuls and things like that and playing blitz matches. I wasn't able to go to Eindhoven to see him, but and I was due to go to Denmark afterwards, so I couldn't travel to Vikenzie to to see the event. But I was playing with a, a bunch of passers who were all going themselves mm -hmm. and that kind of vibe where we're all just kind of you know we've got like a stein of beer we've got some cheese going on we've got coffee <laughs> we're being just the right amount of raucous that we're that you know you're in a pub but we're also approaching it with the same tact and temerity of a chess match <laughs> being <Sounds great. laughs> oh my god it's amazing like somebody <laughs> Keeping score, somebody's in charge of pairings. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like those guys all went on to to play at the uh, tournament. I didn't get a chance to keep track to touch base with them and see how they were doing, but that kind of uh, event is what draws me. It would be, I don't even care, and this is honest to god truth. I don't care how I do if I were to be able to go to that. I would prep for it like it's the match of my life. Mm -hmm to attach to it because I'm actually, I genuinely am just really happy to be there and take part. Yeah. That sounds like a fascinating, just 
experience beyond just the chess. Like Palma de Mallorca, uh, Yekaterinburg in Russia, these locations, and just to name a couple, Sochi and Vikenzi uh, are just a couple of the historic you know, chess locations that I have a dream to play in at every stage of my life, if I could. Well, I hope to meet you at some of these places, Kevin. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up here. I mean, I feel like we could talk for another two, three <laughs> hours. So I think we're going to need a part yeah. two. Uh, uh, where can we yeah. find you, Kevin, if they want to follow up some more with some of your great advice? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I appreciate that. If you want to keep in touch with me, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Grand Theft Academia. That's G-R-N-D-T-H-F-T-A-C-D-M-I-A. Again, that's G-R-N-D-T-H-F-T-A-C-D-M-I-A. I, uh, I have an Instagram, I have a Facebook, but I don't really bleed my chest into there. I keep it on my Twitter for as my blog. Um, that's the best way to get reach of me and the best way to trade hairs with me. I'm on Lee Chess at Kool-Aid Man 2019. Hmm. I made the name in 2019 and I have not been able to change it. Um, and for that... <laughs> sad but at the same time it's a nice little quirk yeah uh my my favorite things is that my uh, old chemistry professor actually follows me there <laughs> he has to live with that he has to say i taught this guy i taught this malaka and uh, and this is his his handle <laughs> <laughs> and uh i'm on chesscom as uh kp infinite uh, okay kp i and i I, wait, I can't spell K-P-I-N-F-I-N-I-T-E. Nice. You know, All right. Challenge, follow me. And uh, I really, you know, link up with me at any of these tournaments. Let me know where you're at. And we'll uh, always have a game of Skittles ready. Awesome. Um, if you want to follow me, I've been streaming some Bobby Fisher 60 memorable games at uh, Dr. Skull with a K underscore Tiny Grimes. Uh, also, if you want to contribute to the show at all, Patreon, Chess Journeys is a great place to do that. I do want to thank um, the four queen-level followers, Terry King, Andrew Perry, Jay Tuttle, Jay Garrison. Thanks so much for your contribution. It really does help a lot. Also, thanks so much to Chessable for the sponsorship. Chessable is amazing. And if you do decide to use AIM Chess that we talked about before, uh, you can use my code DRSKULL30, D-R-S-C-U-L-L. 30 for a nice little discount. I've been experimenting with it and sort of tweeting about my own experience, my own experiences and experiments. It's been interesting so far. I'm really looking to see what I can do. I will say this, it's kind of freaked me out. I was playing the Sicilian and thought I was doing badly with it. And I run my games through and they're like, you are awesome with the Sicilian winning 57% of your games is black. And by the way, you're not that great with a Carol Khan that you switched to. So I'm having a bit of a crisis. So uh, data can be scary sometimes, I guess. It, it can be. But as long as we know what questions we're asking, because that's all we're, we're getting answers back. As long as we know what questions we're asking, we'll never go wrong with it. Yeah, that, that's a great place to end. So thank you so much, everyone, for coming by and uh, enjoy your journey this week. If it's a great one awesome if it's a if it's a rough one that's okay that's okay it's about the journey come back next week we can get you some more tips get you on your way and i'll see you next time <laughs>